Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a hot apple cider. I'm drinking a Malibu Bay Breeze, one of my favorite drinks. Today, we'll be discussing the thalidomide pharmaceutical scandal, which is often called the worst drug disaster in history. Thalidomide was originally marketed as a non-addictive sedative. Post-World War II, many people relied on sleeping pills and tranquilizers to help them sleep. Roughly one in seven Americans claimed to use sedatives regularly, and the demand for sedatives was even greater in Europe. Thalidomide was developed in 1954 by Heinrich Muchter. Muchter was a Nazi doctor that had experimented with vaccines on prisoners at concentration camps. He was not the only war criminal that worked at Grunenthal. The drug first entered the German market in 1956 as an over-the-counter remedy. It was created by the pharmaceutical company Camille Grunenthal and advertised as completely safe for everyone including mother and child, even during pregnancy, as its developers could not find a dose high enough to kill a rat. It was prescribed for everything from pneumonia to the common cold. By 1960, thalidomide was marketed in 46 countries, including Norway, the UK, Canada, and Japan, with sales nearly matching those of aspirin. The company was raking in profits, and their motto was succeed at any cost. Around this time, Australian obstetrician Dr. William McBride discovered that the drug also alleviated nausea and morning sickness. He started recommending this off-label use of the drug to his pregnant patients, setting a worldwide trend. Prescribing drugs for off-label purposes or purposes other than those for which the drug was approved is still a common practice in many countries today, including the United States. The physicians who prescribed thalidomide, the pharmacists who dispensed it, and the patients who ingested it were under the assumption reasonable precautions had been taken by the appropriate federal government officials to ensure that the drug would not harm an unborn child. What the public did not know is that Grunenthal had no reliable evidence to back up its claims that the drug was safe. They also ignored the increasing number of reports coming in about harmful side effects as the drug was being used. Starting in 1959, Grunenthal was flooded with complaints from doctors about mild to severe and sometimes permanent nerve damage, especially by elderly people who had used the drug as a sleeping aid. The first thalidomide-affected baby was born in Germany on December 25, 1956, to a Camille Grunenthal employee. As early as 1960, unsuspected side effects on the nervous system started to be attributed to thalidomide by some doctors. The drug interfered with the baby's normal development, causing many of them to be born with falcomelia, resulting in shortened or absent limbs. It also could cause missing fingers or toes, extra fingers or toes, total or partial hearing loss, partial or total vision loss, paralysis usually of the facial muscles, malformation of the digestive tube, malformation of the duodenum, which was most of the time lethal before or not long after birth, and vital organ injuries. The first concerns about teratogenic hazards were raised in Western Germany in October 1961. That same year, Dr. McBride began to associate his so-called harmless compound with severe birth defects in the babies he delivered. 
The first time the link between thalidomide and its impact on development was made public was in a letter by Dr. McBride published in The Lancet, a scientific journal, in 1961. Grunenthal was dismissive of concerns related to affected babies. When the company was confronted with reports on malformed babies and suggested that the malformations could be possibly linked to thalidomide, they didn't react. Instead of taking the report seriously, Grunenthal responded with measures to keep the drug on the market and sent thousands of letters to German doctors claiming the drug was safe. It took five years for the connection between thalidomide taken by pregnant women and the impact on their children to be made. Some of the reasons researchers and doctors were slow to make this connection was due to the wide range of changes to fetal development. Limbs, internal organs, including the brain, eyesight, and hearing could all be affected. In addition, some of the damage caused by the drug was very similar to certain genetic conditions that affect the upper or lower limbs. A German newspaper reported 161 babies were adversely affected by thalidomide, leading to the makers of the drug to finally stop distribution within Germany in December of 1961. Other countries followed suit, and by March of 1962, the drug was banned in most countries where it was previously sold. Other authorities were slower to withdraw thalidomide from the market, so that in some countries it was available until the end of 1963. One of the few countries to reject thalidomide was the United States. This was largely due to the work of the Food and Drug Administration medical reviewer and pharmacologist Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey. Dr. Kelsey was one of three people charged with determining a drug safety before it could be made available for public consumption. Dr. Kelsey felt the application for thalidomide contained incomplete and insufficient data on its safety and effectiveness. Among her concerns was the lack of data indicating whether the drug could cross the placenta, which provides nourishment to a developing fetus. She was also concerned that there was not yet any results available from United States clinical trials of the drug. Even if this data were available, they may not have been entirely reliable. The company kept pushing and even went to Dr. Kelsey's supervisors to get the drug approved, but she refused. At the time, clinical trials did not require FDA approval, nor were they subject to oversight. The clinical trials of thalidomide involved distributing more than 2.5 million tablets of thalidomide to approximately 20,000 patients across the nation. Approximately 3,760 women of childbearing age, at least 207 of whom were pregnant. The drug was once again promoted as a safe alternative to other sedatives when samples were given. More than 1,000 physicians participated in these trials, but few tracked their patients after dispensing the drug. Dr. Kelsey was highly experienced, and her work on a project in 1937 prompted Congress to pass the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938, which added a new drug section requiring manufacturers to present evidence that a drug was safe before going to market. Before her work preventing thalidomide from coming to the American market, President Kennedy awarded Kelsey the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service, making her the second woman to receive such a high civilian honor. The Thalidomide Society was formed in 1962 in the United Kingdom 
by the parents of children affected by the drug thalidomide and originally aimed to provide mutual support and a social network as well as to seek compensation. In the late 1960s and into the early 1970s, the victims of the drug thalidomide and their families from around the world entered into class action lawsuits or threatened actions against the various drug companies who manufactured and or distributed the drug, and they were eventually awarded settlements. In most countries, these settlements included monthly or annual payments based on the level of disability of the individual. In 1968, Kimi Blumenthal was brought to trial in Germany for involuntary manslaughter, criminal negligence, and premeditated bodily harm. But in 1970, it was brought to an end by the German government, stating that the trial was not in the public interest. The company settled the case out of court, and arrangements were made to compensate German victims. However, to accept the money, the Littemiters had to agree to not file any more lawsuits against the company. No one was found guilty of any crime. The same year, the British licensee, the Distillers Company, also reached a compensation settlement with the UK victims of the drug. In the UK, payments from distillers as well as government compensation were administered to the Thalidomide Trust. In 1972, a highly publicized campaign led by the Sunday Times newspaper helped to secure a further settlement for children affected by thalidomide in the United Kingdom. In 2012, the Grunenthal Group finally apologized for the tragedy, saying they, quote, regretted the consequences of the drug, end quote. They continued by saying, quote, we also apologize for the fact that we have not found a way to apologize to you from person to person for almost 50 years. Instead, we have been silent and we are very sorry for that. We ask that you regard our long silence as a sign of the silent shock that your fate has caused us. We have learned how important it is that we engage in an open dialogue with those affected and to talk and to listen to them, end quote. The apology occurred at the unveiling of a memorial for thalidomide victims in Stahlberg, Germany. Both the apology and memorial received criticism. Despite the apology, Grunenthal still insists that the lack of a verdict in the 1970 trial amounts to an exoneration and has never accepted responsibility. The World Health Organization ran a clinical trial on the use of thalidomide for leprosy in 1967, and after more positive results, thalidomide was used as a treatment for leprosy in many countries. Thalidomide for leprosy was not heavily regulated in certain countries, and a second generation of thalidomide babies were born, particularly in Brazil. By 2003, there were an estimated 1,000 thalidomide babies born there. More recently, it has been successfully used to control some AIDS-related conditions and as a targeted cancer drug for treating cancers such as multiple myeloma. In the UK, thalidomide is only prescribed by a doctor under strict controls. Women taking thalidomide are required to use two forms of birth control and take regular pregnancy tests. Men are required to use contraception when taking thalidomide. People who are prescribed thalidomide undergo counseling and are talked through the results, but there is still controversy around the use of the drug today. It is hard to tell exactly how many thalidomide victims there were because many babies were stillborn, dead before birth, 
or died soon after birth due to the severity of their malformations. Not all of these births were registered in proper form, especially considering that several thalidomide infants are believed to have been infanticide victims and were killed by parents, doctors, and midwives. In the U.S., the FDA counted 17 thalidomide babies, but since 2016, a total of 60 thalidomide babies have been identified. It is estimated that 10,000 to 15,000 children were born worldwide with malformations attributable to thalidomide, and only 3,000 are alive today. The victims also include the families of all the children whose lives were severely impacted by this tragedy. Del, had you heard about this case beforehand? So I had not heard about all the details just in passing about the effect of the drug on the children's who mothers took it while they were pregnant. It's a lot worse than I had thought of because I had only really known a little bit of details too. What are your thoughts on the scandal and the company never being really tried for their what I would call crimes. So my thoughts on the scandal is that the company obviously shows the worst sides of capitalism. They show the side of capitalism that socialists highlight, where you say that, look at this evil, greedy company that only cared about their profits and did not care about the real harm that their product was doing to people. And the fact that they had a fake trial that was then called off which led to the company thinking that they did nothing wrong despite then apologizing 50 years later and doing a what I consider a BS memorial doesn't change the fact that the company was wrong. I believe that if you are producing a drug, you have to go through the strictest of standards. I'm pretty sure Coca-Cola probably went through more tests to get their product out than this company did. And that's a soft drink. And this is medication that you are putting into your body and you're expecting it to do less harm than what the actual condition is supposed to be treating is doing. And I know we're going to talk about that a little later. I absolutely agree. I also don't really accept the apology. Dell and I are obviously not part of the thalidomide group of victims, but it's very insincere to me. It's definitely a non-apology. What did they say? They regretted the consequences what is that? That's just like a, a degree away from saying the truth. Yeah. And I mean, what consequences do you regret? Because they're your actions that cause those. I never understand. Your reputation was already in the trash. So it would have done you no real harm to keep silent. And sometimes I think companies don't understand that keeping silent typically helps you a lot more than trying to do a PR stunt a PR campaign around a faux apology. Yeah, and it was a PR stunt too when they sent all those reports to doctors saying, no, this is actually safe. That's pretty much a cover-up, in my opinion. They're covering the truth up, spreading their lies to keep making money. And I think that even if when these concerns started to be raised, they probably had brought in so much money it obviously would have affected their profits. But at that point, you were already making a ton of money. Right, exactly. And I don't know. I think that is where it crosses the line from just ignorance to you actively doing harm. 
because once you know that there's a problem with the drug that you are selling, I think that you have an obligation not to continue to spread propaganda and promote that. The makers of Yaz didn't send out additional pamphlets after it was found out what Yaz was doing to women to different doctors and saying like, oh no, I know that you're hearing these reports about it, but it's still good. Still give it to your patients. Actually, give it to more patients. They did a second round where they found another disease that thalidomide can be prescribed for. And let's keep finding different diseases. I know that this drug does harm, but we would rather require women and men to be on multiple forms of birth control than to ban this drug. And that's part of the controversy. A lot of people say that for all the precautions you have to go through, the drug doesn't do that much good for certain conditions. Um, I, leprosy, I th do think that it really helps with, but where there's lots of leprosy, these countries aren't regulating the drug the way it should be regulated. And that's why we're seeing a lot more thalidomide babies still being born today. It's not as common, but they're still out there, unfortunately. So that brings us to what happened to the thalidomide babies and their families after the scandal as they became adults and teenagers. A lot of mothers were unfortunately blamed for taking the medication, which if you were taking it before you knew that there was anything wrong with it, why are we blaming people for that? I don't understand. I think it goes to show just how critical of mothers people are. And I feel like parents are scapegoats for so many issues. That is so true. I think it's kind of weird because in a lot of ways, we're supposed to put our trust in doctors. We're supposed to put our trust in pharmacists. So if your doctor and your pharmacist are continuously giving you this drug, how are we then going to turn around and say, well, it's your fault. You should have known. Well, no, not really. Like, yeah, you do your own research, but if your doctor and pharmacist are saying this is a safe drug, you're going to assume that it's safe. Exactly. They have certifications and degrees to prove that they know more, that they know what they're doing. Many of these people did think that they were doing the right thing. We saw Dr. McBride, and then once he realized, hey, there's a lot of babies being born with birth defects, maybe there is a link and a cause, and he tried to let the public know Dr. Kelsey was a pharmacologist. She was not taking any shit from anybody. Everyone thought they were acting in good faith. However, some doctors were definitely not. One German mother said that her doctor told her to get another child and forget about her son who was born with shortened limbs. And I believe a mother in Australia was told something similar. Just to forget about this kid and focus on growing your family to have quote-unquote normal children. A lot of babies were put up for adoption which led some to having probably better lives than they would with their parents, fortunately, wasn't the case for everybody. And a lot of parents actually suffered from anxiety and mental illness because they had to see their children suffer physically. Their children were in pain and were about to get to this, but a lot of them faced social isolation and rejection, and that's tough on any parent to see. And because of this mental health distress, some did unfortunately die by suicide. Before the crisis became public, children in small villages were kept away in their homes. I believe they were really just seen as embarrassments. 
children were often put in institutions and facilities and they were separated from other children in schools for the handicapped. Some were put away immediately after birth and essentially forgotten about. There is a famous um, thalidomide activist. Her name is Louise. She's in the UK and her parents put her away not long after she was born. And I believe she said she went home like three weeks out of the year to visit them. And it was like having to get to know her siblings all over again. I can't even imagine that. Public schools also didn't want to accept some thalidomiders and unfortunately some faced bullying and social rejection because of their disabilities. And some parents even tried to hide their children's disability with clothing. And it all goes to show just how disabilities were not publicly talked about or accepted at this time. You you can argue that they're really not accepted today, but I want everyone to kind of think of this to get a sense of what was going on at the time. So World War II had, you know, not happened that long ago when the thalidomide babies were being born. And disabled children and adults were some of the first murdered during the Holocaust. And to give some even more perspective, the American Disabilities Act was not passed until 1990. So pretty new piece of legislation. Doctors thought thalidomide babies wouldn't be educated, have independence, or ever lead a normal life. And it was assumed that they would have shorter lifespans than their peers. Many thalidomiders have grown up to have independent, fulfilling lives with partners, able-bodied children, and jobs that they enjoy. Some of them don't see themselves as disabled. That's really more of a label that society has put on them, I guess you would say. And many use adaptations, or they don't use them. And some people might be surprised to know that adaptations like artificial arms aren't worn by some thalidomiders. They actually feel like they're not themselves when they're wearing them. And in some cases, artificial limbs were actually dangerous. People would fall over with them and it was really just more of a hazard than something that was helpful. However, years of having to compensate for their disabilities and use their bodies in ways that they weren't designed for has taken its toll. Now, many adult victims of thalidomide have poor health outcomes compared to their peers. It's common for them to have musculoskeletal problems, dental issues, and depression and anxiety. Many rely on wheelchairs and other pieces of modern medical technology to stay active and independent. They sometimes require housing needs adaptations. As they age, it's sometimes harder to keep a job because of their disabilities and other health issues. Only recently has there been studies and research on thalidomiders as they age, but aging with disability is complex. There is mounting evidence that the cumulative effects of living with a disability condition for many years contribute to premature declines in health, and people experiencing the later life effects of early acquired disabilities appear to be at more risk of depression and lower life satisfaction, although there is evidence that poor overall health rather than the extent of original impairments is more significant in terms of social isolation, and that is from a study that occurred in the United Kingdom. We mentioned compensation a lot throughout our main case discussion. Victims of medication-related injuries face challenges in obtaining compensation. This includes time barriers, difficulties proving the drugs were responsible for the disability, and obtaining sufficient evidence 
to prove a pharmaceutical company was negligent. So many victims and their families did not receive the payouts and supports from government that they initially claimed that they would receive. This varied country by country with mainly German victims receiving compensation. Canadian victims of thalidomide were left to cope alone initially after being told that the government would grant them supportive funds and created disparities in settlements for families that settled out of court. No social support groups were available. The government eventually provided aid in 1991 and a new compensation program was launched in 2015 and victims now receive lifelong pension. In Spain, thalidomide survivors did not receive any compensation from the company that made the drug until 2011, with only 23 victims receiving a payment. In 2014, a Spanish court decided the company should pay the victims 35 million euros. This was appealed by the company and overturned on the basis of the statute of limitations expiring. In the United Kingdom, only 62 families received compensation initially. And in 1973, over 300 more families received compensation and the Thalidomide Trust was set up to provide support and assistance, including annual grants to all thalidomide survivors. By 2010, all beneficiaries of the Thalidomide Trust had also received a health grant from the health departments in all four nations of the United Kingdom to help meet the increased health needs caused by their thalidomide damage. And I'm not sure if this is expiring soon, Um, I read somewhere that there was a 10-year deal to give victims an annual stipend, and it's set to expire in 2022. So if anyone out there knows someone and could explain that, um, I would definitely be interested in hearing about it. In 2016, European Parliament voted to ensure all victims received comparable compensation, and they called for the EU to aid victims and their families. In 2015, the German government acknowledged their legal responsibility to individuals who were quote-unquote damaged by thalidomide manufactured in Germany. Many victims trying to seek compensation as adults struggle because they need to prove that their mother actually took the drug. And this is difficult for some people because some of their mothers are no longer alive, doctors may have retired, and records may have been lost or maybe not even kept because it was so long ago. Compensation payments often focus on injury and consequences. It's a very complicated process, and a lot of thalidomide activists are arguing that it shouldn't be this complicated process. There's so much proof that these people have to go through and so much paperwork to fill out. And I saw um, this quote by an activist that I thought was really profound, and I think they summed it all up by saying, quote, being disabled is very expensive and thalidomide people need help and care and adaptations to their cars and homes. We just want people to live a comfortable life and that means Grunenthal have to pay for their mistake financially, end quote. That's another thing. This company is privately owned. It's owned by the same family that I think has owned it since the 30s. The company has enough money that they very well could pay all of these thalidomide victims around the world some kind of payment. And that leads us to the question, payouts for crimes. Does the payout help the suffering? What are your thoughts, Del? I think the answer is yes and no. So when it comes to the tangible consequences of the drug, then yes. 
Uh, the funds can be used to pay for different adaptations that the victims need for their lives, such as making sure that they have the right equipment. But also, no, because there is no amount of money that is going to restore what you lost due to this drug. Because if payouts were enough to compensate for crimes, then what you're basically saying is rich people can go out and hurt people. Poor people can't. That's that's the standard that you're setting. Poor people go to jail. Rich people, they uh, get sued. And, you know, they pay out 0.1% of their net worth to go home at night. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. What about you? Oh, that's like the running theme of this podcast, right? That rich people can get away with whatever they want and poor people just have to suffer in jail. You touched on so many good points. It's definitely very complex. And I think it really depends case by case. I think probably more so in this case, the payouts do help the suffering because like that activist said, being disabled is expensive. And if these companies and governments can help these thalidomiders in some way to make their life easier, whether it's paying for their medical bills, paying for medication, paying for therapy sessions, anything like that, I definitely think it's helpful. It kind of sucks that the compensation does vary based on degree of disability, but it also, it makes sense because some people's disabilities, life is harder for them and they need more adaptations to their home. They need 24-hour care if their parents aren't able to care for them anymore. I really wish that this company had had some kind of legal repercussions because there's so much evidence to show that they knew what they were doing all along and they didn't think they could get caught or I guess they thought they could just keep getting away with it. I don't even know what the thinking was. They didn't stop the production of thalidomide until it was basically public knowledge and a scandal was starting. Then the next day, they took it off the market. And that was in Germany. The Canadian government let it stay on the market for months after. And that's why a lot of people in Canada were so upset, especially since they weren't getting compensation when the government played a huge role in that. Adele and I have mentioned before that neither of us are crime victims. I hope we never are. But I would be curious as to what people's opinions are. I think it would probably vary, you know, person by person, case by case. So the thalidomide disaster caused many nations' governments to enact stricter laws on drugs and testing, approval, and marketing. Like we said, there was a lot of controversy in Canada with the way the government handled the disaster, but Canadian legislature did introduce a bill to amend their Food and Drugs Act and created two committees, the Special Committee to Study Existing Legislation on Investigational Drugs and the Expert Committee on Rehabilitation of Congenital Malformations Associated with Thalidomide. Drugs intended for human use could no longer be approved purely on the basis of animal testing and drug trials for substances marketed to pregnant women also had to provide evidence that they were safe to use in pregnancy. The easy over-the-counter access to thalidomide prompted many countries to improve their classification and control of medicines. In the United Kingdom, the 1968 Medicines Act was passed as a result of this scandal, and it made distinctions between prescription drugs, drugs only available in pharmacies, and drugs available for general sale. The yellow card scheme was set up for doctors to share previously unknown side effects of medications they prescribed. The scheme has now widened so anyone can report a side effect. 
1962, after the dangers of the drug thalidomide became internationally known, the U.S. Congress passed the Kefiver-Harris Amendment, which required more oversight for clinical studies, including informed consent by the patients in the studies and scientific evidence of the drug's effectiveness, not just its safety. The Bulk Pharmaceutical Chemicals Act of 1963, which established good laboratory practices for handling raw materials, the Drug Abuse Control Amendment of 1965, and the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act of 1966, which established procedures for packaging and labeling drugs, were also passed. However, in Brazil, 20 years passed between knowledge of the thalidomide tragedy at the global level and the first Brazilian initiative for legislation specifically about this drug, which focused on the rights of the victims in 1982. And more than 30 years passed until the 1997 decree on safe use of the drug. Like you said earlier, Del, many people trust their doctors and their pharmacy or it's believe that we should trust them. But in the United States, many people have a difficult time trusting doctors and pharmaceutical companies, as well as modern medicine due to tragedies from the past. At the time of the thalidomide disaster, the FDA had a 60-day window for approving or rejecting drugs. If the 60th day passed, the drug would automatically go into market. Kelsey remembers that this happened at least once. The United States pharmaceutical companies that wanted to distribute thalidomide throughout the country despite having no evidence it was safe and that used clinical trials as a marketing campaign were never prosecuted. A company executive, Richard Merrill, threatened to sue for libel when Dr. Kelsey began searching for the thalidomide babies born in the United States. The FDA is increasingly greenlighting expensive drugs despite dangerous or little-known side effects and inconclusive evidence that they curb or cure disease. Faster reviews means that the FDA often approves drugs despite limited information. These faster approvals bring money to the pharmaceutical companies. The FDA is also increasingly allowing drug makers to claim success in trials based on proxy measurements instead of clinical outcomes like survival rates or cures, which take more time to evaluate. In return for our accelerated approval, drug companies commit to researching how well their drug works after going to market. But these post-marketing studies can take 10 years or longer to complete, leaving patients and doctors with lingering questions about safety and benefit. Companies typically pay for 75% of the FDA's scientific review budget for branded and generic drugs. People call relationships between the FDA and these companies a partnership. This has really been an issue, I think, over the past like 20 or so years between the FDA and these pharmaceutical companies and the FDA and increasingly approving more drugs. I think their rejection rate is only like 20% right now. I'm not sure. I know those are just kind of stats. It's hard to know when you don't know the whole story, but 20% doesn't seem like that much. These drug disasters can seem like ancient history because we've got modern technology and theoretically the FDA should have more 
control and better science behind what they approve and what they don't. But there's been quite a lot of medications recalled since the thalidomide disaster around the world. And here are just a few we wanted to highlight. The first is Bextra. It was recalled in 2005 after being on the market for only one year. It's an arthritis drug that caused high risk of heart attack, stroke, and a fatal skin condition. And it gave rise to one of the largest criminal fines ever imposed in the United States. Pharmacia, and Upjohn company, was fined $1.195 billion in addition to legal awards after admitting to criminal wrongdoing, specifically with intent to defraud or mislead in relation to the promotion of the drug. Then there's Vioxx, which was recalled in 2005 after being on the market for five years. It was one of the largest recalls in history. I believe this was a drug that was given worldwide. Again, it was a pain reliever for arthritis that caused increased risk of heart attack and stroke. Both the maker Merck and the FDA were criticized for ignoring evidence of the dangers of Vioxx before its eventual recall. And The Lancet, once again, that's a medical journal, reported that as many as 140,000 people could have suffered from serious coronary heart disease from taking the drug in the U.S. alone. The drug DES was recalled in 1975 after 37 years on the market. It was given to prevent miscarriages and pregnancy complications, but it turned out that it actually caused a rare tumor to appear in the daughters of women who had taken the drug. And a more recent drug that was recalled was Zantac. Zantac is an antacid, so people with acid reflux would use it. I used it. I don't know if you've ever used it, Del. It was linked to causing liver damage and I believe cancer as well. And it's been recalled in many countries and I think many varieties of ranitidine, which has been recalled in many countries. And a majority of recalls are from manufacturing plants that fail inspection. These numbers might freak you out a little bit. Uh, They're kind of scary to me too, but I'm not sure if it's really something we need to be worried about. But recall numbers are low compared to the number of drugs on the market. But inspectors miss serious hazards. Drug makers fail to meet standards even after the FDA has taken enforcement action. And hundreds of plants haven't even been inspected for years, if ever. The FDA is supposed to inspect domestic and foreign plants, but some plants have gone at least five years without any type of inspection, which that's pretty scary to me. And I understand why people are so scared of taking medicines for this reason. With some drugs having unpleasant side effects, this begs the question, do the ends outweigh the means? So Del and I kind of talked about this beforehand, and we said, if taking this medication will give me five more problems that I have to deal with, is it worth it? And we have a few examples of drugs with some pretty wild side effects. So the first is Ally. I don't know if it's on the market anymore, but it was a weight loss drug that would make you lose control of your bowels. And I remember Stephen Colbert making fun of this on his show years ago because I believe on the box for this drug, it said to wear dark colored pants. There's also blood pressure medication that has been linked to having nightmares and vivid dreams. There is also several drugs, acne medications, antibiotics, some oral contraceptives, 
and some chemotherapy medication that may cause your nails to separate from the nail bed, which sounds terrible. To me, a big medication with terrible side effects that comes to mind is Accutane. Accutane is acne medication that linked to a lot of mental health issues, depression, anxiety, and I believe suicidal ideation. It also can potentially cause miscarriage and inflammatory bowel disease. And I think the people that are on Accutane are pretty heavily watched by their doctors. If you're a woman on Accutane, I think you have to regularly get pregnancy tests too. And finally, Abilify. And one thing it can cause is gambling addiction. And I picked this one specifically because in the United States, we have commercials for medicine, whether it's over the counter or not. We're pretty unique in that aspect. Uh, A lot of people don't agree with it. I'm one of them, but that's a story for another day. But often in these commercials, there will be a list of the side effects. And I remember seeing commercials for Abilify and hearing that increased gambling addiction was one of them. And I just remember thinking, what the hell? How? How is that any kind of side effect for any medicine? And Abilify is an antipsychotic drug meant to help with depression and bipolar disorder. But there have been hundreds of lawsuits nationwide that blame the drug for causing compulsive behavior, especially gambling. And I think it can even go to eating, shopping, and like sex addictions as well. One woman said that she lost custody of her kids and possession of her house because of a gambling habit she said began after she was prescribed Abilify for her depression. She estimated her gambling habit cost her between one and two million dollars in less than five years. Del, have you ever seen that commercial or have any other commercial or medication stuck out to you? I think when it comes to commercials for medicine, I don't mind them as much. Though I always find it so weird how legal they sound in a way. Like, oh, we need to make sure that we're including this legal term. We need to make sure that we are adding this warning. So it's definitely something that's been heavily regulated and gotten the lawyers involved to make sure that they're saying everything that they need to say. Partially because of cases like thalidomide which caused so many lawsuits. Companies are just like, okay, we want to continue promoting our product, but we want to make sure that we're also covering our asses. So we're going to say something like, if you're allergic to this medicine, stop taking it. Like, no shit. If I'm allergic to your medicine, I'm not going to take it. But they have to say it. Yeah, stuff like that or certain things like that, that fine print has to be included because they're You know, is someone out there that isn't going to understand that and mistake their drug? Some medications can give you one side effect and then you're on another medication for that side effect as well. And it's almost like a cycle that just never ends. Do you have any general thoughts, Del, on the ends outweighing the means with some of these medicines? Definitely. I think that when it comes to whether to take a drug or not, I think there's two things that everyone should consider. One, is your doctor recommending that you take this drug? I don't think that blogs or different type of websites like WebMD can tell you whether you should take a drug or not. I think that you should be having a real thorough conversation with your doctor 
to determine whether you should actually be on a certain medication. And that includes over-the-counter medications as well. A lot of people skip out on that. They're like, oh, it's over-the-counter. I don't need to talk to my doctor about this. But you never know how a drug is going to interact with you or interact with other prescribed medications that you're taking. So I think it's always a good start to consult your doctor when it comes to any type of things that you are ingesting into your body. And the second thing is that it really depends on the severity of the condition that it's meant to treat. So if the condition is knee pain and the side effect is a crippling migraine, for me, no, it's not worth it. You know, I'll find a different way to handle my knee pain. But if you have cancer, I definitely understand you being willing to accept those severe side effects. Because chemo is not an easy process. Chemo is very hard, but it's battling cancer. It's not battling knee pain. You hit the nail on the head. There's not a one-size-fits-all explanation for medicine and what you should be willing to sacrifice in order to have this issue fixed. It's all really up to you. And like you said, Del, it's so important to... Find a doctor that you trust and are comfortable with and a doctor that respects you and listens to you. I know that can be very hard to find for some people. And yeah, I I really like that you mentioned don't listen to blogs. I'm sure some blogs are okay, but the first thing that comes to mind for me is goop and those like neo-medical professionals, I guess you want to say, because certain things just aren't going to work for serious conditions. I know that people always want to say like, oh, like natural remedies, natural remedies. Just because something is natural and it comes from the earth doesn't mean you need to be putting it in your body. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the thalidomide disaster. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.